0: fuzzy logic we're talking coral bleaching we're talking dinosaurs we're talking bad bacon and magic pills all the science news from this week coming up today right here on fuzzy logic Good morning Canberra and welcome to Fuzzy Logic Your Science on a Sunday right here on 98.3 FM Two Double X Community Radio and thanks very much to Pat for the last hour of Irish Voice but now we're moving into the world of science and uh, what's been happening scientifically in your world have you uh, encountered something specifically scientific in the week just gone uh, for me i went up to sydney on the weekend and i did a course on raspberry pi now if you haven't heard of raspberry pi before this is basically a computer in a really small box like a, a, a you know a board a chip it's, well, it's more than just a chip, but it's basically, if you imagine those external hard drives, you know, the ones that uh, you plug in by a USB to your computer, it's something in a box about that size that is a whole computer in itself, and it only costs about 80 bucks. It's amazing. And it, the, the idea is it's, it's designed for people to uh, enter the world of programming and... Uh, to get involved without much cost, without much overhead. It's sort of a computer for everyone. And the thing I was amazed by, and we were talking about this in the course that I was doing, was the size of the object there and the power inside it compared to things like when they used to have to fly hard drives in planes and the 2 megabyte hard drive would take up most of the plane cargo. You know, crazy things like that. The processing power that is in that tiny little Raspberry Pi is uh, more than we had on the first space missions. It's just crazy to think how far we've come in such a short time. And so that's what got me excited when I was doing the Raspberry Pi course on, on the weekend. And uh, look, goodness knows what I'm actually going to do with it. That's That's half the problem with this technology, isn't it? You get some new technology and then it's like, well, this is great. What can I do with it? I don't know. I'll explore. If you have any Raspberry Pi projects that you've done... Uh, Let us know, comment on our Facebook page, I need some help as to what to do with this Raspberry Pi now that I've got it. Uh, So yeah, you can find us on Facebook, Uh, just search for Fuzzy Logic, click on the Autumn leaf and find us there and make a comment on the page. Say, Broderick, this is what you can do with a Raspberry Pi. And I just realised, as I said my name then, I haven't introduced myself. My name is Broderick and it's a pleasure to be with you today uh, as we explore the world of science. because science really is all around us and it's becoming a bigger and bigger part of our lives. Every day, hopefully, as uh, we uh, you know improve the world around us. But it also identifies some problems in the world around us. And one of those big problems at the moment is coral bleaching. And I'm going to get to that later in today's show. The big issues of coral bleaching surrounding the Great Barrier Reef. I also might talk a little bit about dinosaurs just because... Dinosaurs are awesome and some news this week out about some dinosaurs that are being studied. But I thought I'd start off today with um, something about bacon. Because it is Sunday. Did you have bacon for breakfast this morning? I skipped it. I had cereal and toast. Um, and it's not because this new report has come out saying that bacon's bad. Uh, it was just because I didn't have any bacon in the house, unfortunately. And now I'm the more I say bacon, the more I want bacon. I might have to have a BLT for lunch. Uh, But is bacon good for us? Is bacon bad for you? What do you reckon? Well, I mean, it it does have a bit of uh, fat and that sort of thing and bad things, but there's good parts to it too, because it's got to be good, right? It's got meaty bits and things. This is the thing. Scientific research comes out all the time, doesn't it? And sometimes it says that something's good. Sometimes it says that something's bad. So what's this report on bacon saying? Well... It's a new report from two major research groups out and it's saying that bacon is linked to cancer. Now that story might sound familiar to you because last October the World Health Organization made a similar sort of conclusion in a paper and they said that eating processed meat such as bacon was linked with a higher risk of developing colorectal cancer, a specific type of disease that begins in the colon or rectum. So, it doesn't look good for bacon, does it? But, I mean, you've got to take it all into consideration as to, you know, what they actually mean when they say there's an increased chance of cancer. And and so let's let's dig deeper. Um, so there's the risk factor. So for every 50 grams of processed meat eaten per day, every day, the equivalent of a hot dog, the risk of cancers of the lower stomach increases by 18%. So... I mean, that sounds pretty dire, doesn't it? 18% increased chance of cancer, 50 grams of processed meat eaten per day. But, I mean, let's just put that into consideration here. I mean, 50 grams per day means quite a lot of processed meat. You know, if you had, um, if the only bacon you eat is bacon and eggs on the weekend, unless you go crazy on the bacon, you're probably going to be okay because, you know, that's probably a, a... it's about uh, 50 to 100 grams for a couple of rashes, so it's, it's all right. And even if you eat bacon a couple times a week, maybe a, a BLT for lunch you know, on Mondays and Thursdays and, and then on the weekend, you're probably still going to be okay. Um, it's just if you're eating that processed meat all the time, you know, bacon for breakfast every day, a ham sandwich for lunch, and a bit of uh, salami on your pizza for dinner, that's when you're going to be in trouble. I mean, I think you'll probably get quite bored with that processed meat diet as well, but uh, it, it's those sorts of levels. And when we are talking about an increased risk of cancer, we're increasing the risk by 18% which is a decent number. You know, it's, it's a fifth more likely to get cancer. But you've got to think about the uh, the level of uh, probability of getting cancer already, which is reasonably low uh, for, for colorectal cancer. And so you're, you're increasing a small chance by a little bit, which means, you know, in reality, it's it's not the, uh, the end for bacon. It's not going to kill us all. Um, we just have to be careful and think about what we eat as i as i seem to say when we talk about any new food study on uh fuzzy logic everything in moderation if you just slow down on the bacon don't go too crazy with it then you'll probably be okay so you know that's uh something to keep in mind when you're thinking about bacon and what to eat and all that sort of thing (laughs) But uh, for the moment, let's make another move onto magic pills because if we're going to eat our bacon, then uh, maybe we need some magic pills too to help us out. No, what, what magic pills I'm talking about? Well, I'm talking about allergies and, and and food allergies. I'm talking about hay fever. I'm talking about asthma. Things that. Uh, are really just our body punishing us for being exposed to certain things, things like pollen, things like eggs, things like nuts. But, I mean, in, in general, it's our body reacting to something that's really quite harmless. It uh, it punishes us and doesn't work properly, recognizing harmless objects and just going crazy trying to get them out of us when really they're not that bad for us. Um, And what's actually happening is, uh, you know, it's our immune system. It's trying to protect us. And it's really important keeping bacteria and viruses at bay. Uh, But sometimes, for reasons we still don't quite understand, it just goes crazy. It sees something like eggs or dog fur and just thinks, "Mm, "Nah, I need to get rid of this. I need to, you know, uh, kick it out. And uh, so it goes crazy and it makes all these little antigens and it's going... uh, reacting and and it builds up antibodies against the allergens and every time it comes in it gives you inflammation snot all those sorts of things that we get with allergies and uh, there's not a whole lot we can do about it really uh, but some new scientists have come out with a potential solution because the branch of the immune system that's responsible to tell the rest of the body that something is actually harmless to us and and we don't need to go crazy about it, that's called the innate immune system. So innate immune system. But once uh, an allergen has been labelled as bad, once you've reacted badly to the peanuts, to the dog fur, it never gets the chance to come into contact with the innate immune system again. So you're kind of stuffed because it's never going to be able to get to that stage where, hey, I'm safe. It won't be able to tell your body that. And so there's not a whole lot you can do until now. A new team uh, of researchers over in the US have found a way to smuggle in these allergens into the innate immune system. How are they doing that? Well, they've created a Trojan horse almost uh, that's going to take the... um, The soldiers right into your body, so they can start fighting for you. And that Trojan horse comes in the form of dissolvable nanoparticles out of an FDA-approved polymer. So what they do is they uh, fill this uh, these uh, little nanoparticle Trojan horses with the allergen before injecting them into people. Well, they haven't done it with people yet. I must say they started with mice. And so what they did was they found some mice that were allergic to eggs. They filled their little uh, nanoparticle Trojan horses with egg protein and then injected it into the mice. And uh, usually when exposed to egg protein, these mice would develop an asthma-like response. But because the egg protein was safely stored inside the uh, friendly-looking nanoparticles, the body didn't react. It just took it in. It's like, yeah, come on, bring on the nanoparticles. I'm happy with that. And in fact, the interesting thing was, uh, when the nanoparticles were injected into the mice's blood system, uh, they the nanoparticles were cleaned up by macrophages, which are kind of like the vacuums of the bloodstream trying to clean up any debris. Uh, and these macrophages, coincidentally, are part of the innate immune system, which meant that the allergens were then processed by the innate immune system. And it was like, hey, this is all good. I like this. I can... Uh, deal with the egg protein so this is great because the vacuum cleaner sucks it up uh, in the macrophage and uh, then the body starts to recognize that the allergen is okay and uh, doesn't go crazy and the immune system shuts down its attack on that allergen and gets reset to normal So, after this treatment, what happened to the mice? Well, they no longer had an allergic reaction to eggs. Their immune systems were actually stronger. Awesome! That's what we want to hear. So, the team is focused on doing further tests in mice and eventually humans. The goal to see it trialled against everything from food allergies, asthma and hay fever. They're even looking into using the same technique against autoimmune conditions, such as multiple sclerosis, MS, MS. And celiac disease uh, for those people who suffer from uh, extreme gluten uh, intolerance. So that's fantastic because given, you know, increases in allergies and autoimmune problems these days, any solution like this is going to be hugely valuable. So Look at that Trojan horse getting the allergens into our body. Awesome stuff. Well, speaking of horses... Uh, Let's have some country music. Does that work, bluegrass? A little bit of uh, music here. This is local Canberra band Mustard Courage with their song Can't Hide From The Moonshine. <music> the time is 11.19 and you're listening to Fuzzy Logic right here on Two 2XFM Community Radio in Canberra. And today we are talking about all the latest news in science. And the big story from the week, especially in Australian science is bleaching of the coral reef. What's going on with the coral reef? That suddenly we are in trouble. It's worrying. It's it's something that scientists are Very concerned about, and uh, it's something that we as uh, Australian citizens should be concerned about too. Coral bleaching is something that happens when abnormal environmental conditions cause coral to expel tiny photosynthetic algae called zooxanthellae. These are the algae that react to light and and help keep life going on down there. And loss of colourful algae causes the coral to turn white and bleach and bleached coral can then recover, only if the temperature drops and zooxanthellae are able to recolonize them. Otherwise, the coral can die. Because it's really important to think of the whole coral reef as a huge system. It's not just one uh, element living on its own there. It's the coral with the uh, algae in there and bacteria that all interact together in a harmonic environment to create that but things are changing things are really changing and it's quite worrying and plenty of scientists are expressing their opinions on this and uh, I think we should start this segment by having a little listen to Professor Justin Marshall who's been working on the reef for about 30 years and uh, he's angry so let's take a listen to Justin and see what he has to say about it in this short clip.
1: imagine it's about as bad as it's going to get at the moment, because I have yet to see a healthy coral. There's no coral I haven't seen that isn't bleached. What's going to happen from now is uh, some of those corals will grow algae on them, they'll grow uh, things that will stop the coral reforming, uh, and they'll die. The reason that we're seeing extensive coral bleaching on the Great Barrier Reef at the moment is because of this unseasonably high temperature. You can see it's fluctuating from about 30 degrees to 34, so the average is above 30, and that's what's keeping the coral bleached. <laughs> Australia needs to decide, do we want a reef or do we want coal, because we can't have both. We need to step up. I would encourage any Australian to come out and look at the reef right now. this untouchable, you know, largest living structure on Earth that's visible from space. And I could tell you right now from space, it will be visible as a white streak down the side of Australia. But, you know, to be honest, I am very worried that, um, because of what I've seen in the last few days, that I'm, I'm witnessing the death of a, a large section of the I bring my kids out here. To be honest, right now, I would be ashamed to bring my children to the rig.
0: That sound clip there taken from ASOP Media. You can find the link to the video on our Facebook page Worrying things. When you hear scientists talking with emotion like that, you know something has to be up because scientists are trained to exclude emotion from the work that they're doing. They're trained to look at things scientifically in a logical and ordered fashion. But when we start hearing stories like that, that really does make me worry. Uh, Professor Justin Marshall, who was there... um, has been saying, you know, he's cried and broken down in front of cameras. This is devastating and gut-wrenching, he said. Um, back in November, researchers and staff on the Australian Museum's Lizard Island Research Station started to see the early signs of coral bleaching, which are faded colours and odd fluorescent hues and big chunks of white, and... Um, and uh, the Great Barrier Reef, of which Loomis Reef is just one of 3,000 that make up the whole GBR, is in its death throes after the worst ever coral bleaching event, which was part of the third global mass bleaching since 1998. Latest figures are showing that 93% of the reef has been impacted by bleaching, the worst affected areas in the reef's north. It's an amazingly diverse reef uh. Professor Marshall said, "About 500 meters long, covered in lots of different coral, and now it's just going to be a big ball of slime." So that's crazy. You know, it's an, it's it's just uh, crazy to see that the reef um, that we know and love and is so much a part of Australia and what we are is um, is changing and uh, becoming a bleached reef, a white reef, a dead reef. Um, You know, bleaching has happened in the past and um, University of Queensland uh, scientist Dr Juan Ortiz uh, has analysed data from uh, the past three decades which showed that corals were exposed to uh, what could be called practice runs of, of gradually warming waters ahead of each bleaching event. And uh, Dr. Ortiz found that in the past 27 years, about 70% of the thermal stress events have been characterised by a temperature profile that helps the coral to be ready for when the stress happens. And the water becomes warm enough to send signals into the coral's path- metabolic pathways so that it can have a better chance to withstand the bleaching. Um, and that was found to reduce mortality for the coral by more than 50% during the bleaching uh, So these warning signs over the last three decades uh, were able to help the coral deal with it. But Dr Ortiz also says that uh, sea temperatures are steadily rising uh, and it's possible that the temperature of the practice run could eventually exceed the threshold at which bleaching occurred, which switches these events from being protective for the coral to becoming lethal, In fact, just a half a degree of increase in temperature, which is predicted to happen within 40 years, um, means that about 20 to 30% of reefs would lose this protective mechanism to deal with uh, temperature rises to stop the coral bleaching having such a great effect. And with a 2 degree temperature rise, more than 80% of reefs would be directly exposed to bleaching events. And these are the sorts of temperature rises that were that are being predicted. With the carbon emissions that are currently going out, it's showing that the reef could easily die from changes like this. Doctor Ortez says that you know if the reefs can maintain this protective mechanism, they're likely to withstand the effect of climate change if emissions were reduced. But if emissions aren't reduced, maintaining this mechanism would only delay the effect of climate change. It wouldn't stop it. Further studies are being done by more and more scientists on this. They're finding more and more problems out there Of the 520 reefs surveyed across the Great Barrier Reef, only four of them have been found to be unaffected by bleaching. Only four. There's big things going on here. Another scientist that's been studying it from James Cook University, Professor Terry Hughes, has said the situation is critical. Seeing huge levels of bleaching in the northern 1,000-kilometre stretch of the Great Barrier Reef. Now, it's too early to tell, he says, how much of the bleached coral will die. But judging from the extreme level, even the most robust corals are snow white. Crazy. And there's coral cores that provide 400 years of annual growth. And they haven't seen the signatures of bleaching and reduced growth following a bleaching event until the recent 1998 and 2000 bleach events. So it's time to start protecting our reefs. It's time to make a change. We've known about this for a while. We've been seeing what's been happening. But uh, there's still problems. But we can look on the bright side a little bit. uh, As we head to the northern part of the Great Barrier Reef, the most pristine part of the marine park, it's more likely that these pristine reefs in the northern section will be better able to bounce back afterwards. But still, it's looking at a 10 year recovery period. So, this is a very severe blow. Just seeing climate change play out across our reefs. And the world has agreed that this is climate change. We're seeing climate change play out across our reefs. Yet, our government still doesn't listen to us. They haven't been listening for the past 20 years. And we need to join the global community in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. That's why it's exciting that all those world leaders were signing on uh, the other day to join together and to stop this climate change. And hopefully Australia can make some changes as well. It's hard because all the science is pointing towards change that needs to happen. But uh, we just can't seem to get any action. And that's really disappointing. The government has committed $2 billion over the next decade to protect the reef through initiatives such as improving water quality and removing the crown of thorns starfish. But in reality, all that could just be a patch if we don't change the greater effect of uh, climate change and emissions into our environment. We could just be patching up until eventually the reef is going to reach that death point, which would be extremely, extremely sad. Now, some tourist operators have come out against this and said that the reef bleaching isn't as bad as the scientists are saying and they're being a bit overreactive and uh, it's going to affect our tourism of the reef if we start talking about all this bleaching that's happening. But I think they've missed the point there. I think... They need to realise that unless we start acting on this and scientists start spurring people into action with some emotional language and some emotional talks about what's going on here, then there's not going to be any tourism out there. Maybe we need to reduce tourism in the short term to maintain it into the future. It's a, a very important thing to keep an eye on uh, and it's something that we all need to start making sure people respond to. There's plenty going on in the reef and there's plenty of bad things going on, but hopefully if we can act soon and uh, do something about this, we can start to make a difference and the reef can recover from this coral bleaching. It won't be the same. It can't be the same as what it was, but hopefully we can get some level of recovery there to... Keep our reef, because we don't want to lose our Great Barrier Reef. You're listening to Two FM. That's right. The time is 11.41. Broderick Matthews here on Fuzzy Logic Radio, and we are talking about the latest science news all throughout this week and what's been going on in the world and look to take it in a bit more of a positive spin than the depressing coral bleaching that we had before that Uh we're going to move into the world of dinosaurs because dinosaurs are just awesome, right? Right. And uh, there are many relatives of the dinosaurs still around today, uh, and one of those is the bird uh birds are basically mini velociraptors right you can see it in them they're very violent sorts of things um no no, but you can certainly see parts of the bird that are quite similar to dinosaurs and that's because their relatives come from back in the dinosaur day but how did species like uh avian dinosaurs sort of stick around when all the rest of the dinosaurs died out in mass extinction events well Researchers this week think they have a bit of an idea. So about 66 million years ago, asteroid crashed into Earth, created a whole lot of dust, smoke, problems, issues, and a cataclysmic event that uh, meant some of the d- dinosaurs died out. Um, and think the reasons for this, you know, the sunlight was blocked out by a blanket of dust, ash kicked up by the asteroid, which meant plants were unable to photosynthesize, and that spelled the end for the animals that relied on leaves and fruit. Further up, the food chain then, with no... Um, no vegetarian dinosaurs there, Um, no herbivores, that's the scientific term, no herbivores uh, would have meant that the carnivores had no herbivores to eat, so the carnivores then died out. It's a whole big food chain that knocks them over like dominoes. But even with acid rain and scorched earth, things like seeds would have still been available. And seeds would have been what was in the diet of the avian dinosaurs. So their appetite for seeds is probably what kept them alive. They were able to still eat the seeds that were there on the earth, and then they were able to survive. Now, of course, this is just a theory, it's a hypothesis. But looking back over 10 million years, uh, there's a bit of evidence there that helps support this hypothesis. Uh, One of these, according to lead paleontologist on this study, Derek Larson, says that there were bird-like dinosaurs with teeth up until the end of the Cretaceous when they all died off very abruptly. Some groups of beaked birds may have been able to survive the extinction event because they were able to eat seeds. These bird-like creatures, known as the maniraptoran dinosaurs, are not a particularly well-known group, and there's still a lot we don't understand about them. Not least while they died off, while the rest of the dinosaurs, with very when, with the rest of the dinosaurs, when the very similar types of birds survived, and the seed diet might just be the answer to that question. Um, part of this research involved careful analysis of fossil teeth to check whether variations in shape and size decreased over time. And researchers have also assumed that a loss of diversity would indicate a declining ecosystem, but that isn't what they found. There was very little variation in in the ecosystem until the end of the Cretaceous period, supporting the idea that these manoraptor and dinosaurs were killed off very quickly. So there you are. So, taken together, the tooth records and the ancestry data are strong evidence that birds were able to outlive their dinosaur-like cousins because they could peck away at the seeds until other sources of food became available. So if you want to make survive an apocalypse, make sure you've got plenty of seeds, right? Sure. <laughs> On the other side of things, uh, looking at dinosaurs uh, and the way they were born... Uh, and it looks like that uh, some of uh, the young dinosaurs were in, born in such a way that they were able to look after themselves almost as soon as they came out of the egg. And uh, this is looking at dinosaurs such as theropods, uh, sorry, such as sauropods, um, whose young bones appear to be in proportion to those of adult specimens. So some animals, when they're born, uh, and humans are included in this, were all a bit out of proportion. If you uh, made us the same size throughout our whole life but looked at our changing body proportions, you'd see that when we're born, our head is quite, quite large. In fact, it makes up a, a quite a large proportion of our body. And our limbs are quite small, relatively speaking. But then as we grow up, our head Well, it doesn't shrink, but it stays about the same size, and the rest of our body grows into proportion. We end up with longer legs, smaller relative head size. And that's sort of part of our development into adults. That's how our body changes. But uh, with, and this happens with a lot of animals too, they're born in different ways, but with some animals that uh, tend to need to survive on their own as soon as being born, as soon as being hatched out, they will be born in proportion. For example, wildebeest stand just six minutes after birth, walk thirty minutes later, and outrun hyenas only one day after they're born. So that's a really important thing for wildebeest to be able to be uh, to be able to be uh, self-sufficient really early on. It means that there's less investment by their parents to get them going. And this research that was published in the latest edition of Science. Uh, Shows that uh, the Rapetosaurus, which is a type of sauropod uh, known as a Titanosaurus, which is a titanic lizard, uh, growing up to about 15 metres, it's shown that when they were young, they were all born in some sort of proportion. So when the young dinosaur was born, it was only about two and a half to four kilos. And then a couple months later, it was up to 40 kilos and 35 centimeters tall. But it was all in proportion to the adult specimens that have been found, which shows that um, these dinosaurs had a huge evolutionary advantage in that the young could get out of the nest fast and hopefully avoid being eaten by something much larger. So, there you go. Some dinosaur uh, science there for you, looking at evolution and why uh, certain animals might be born the way they are. Well, let's uh, have a little break for a minute. And uh, when I come back, I might talk a bit more about uh, some science news this week, all about passwords and protection. But for now, Let's have a listen. This is Robbie Williams with the old Scarecrow song, If I Only Had a Brain. Robbie Williams there with If I Only Had a Brain. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic here on 2XX Community Radio where a brain is not compulsory but it certainly does help when you tune in, oh, I do love that song. I mean, in the, the movie, it's a bit more upbeat, isn't it? Uh, and I remember, you know, the, the the noise that the Scarecrow would make when you hit him on the head, it'd be a bit of a, uh, a, bit of a hollow noise because he didn't have a brain in there. It was uh, stuff full of nothing. But that sound that he made when he tapped on his head, well, that was pretty unique for the Scarecrow. And it turns out that, in fact, the noise that uh, all of us make when uh, we tap our skull might be quite unique to us, as unique, in fact, as a fingerprint. Scientists in Germany are working on a system that, that can identify the way your skull vibrates in reaction to a signal, an ultrasonic signal, admittedly, not someone knocking on your head. But the way that it reacts could be a new way to identify people just like we do with fingerprints, and uh, using it for places like logging into your email or, or gaining access to secret areas like the Pentagon. Uh, now, at the moment, they've only used a small sample size of 10 people to test the device, but the new system was able to identify the correct user 97% of the time based on their skull so- sounds alone. But, of course, to measure skull vibrations, you're going to need some sort of headset or accessory. Uh, So the researchers are currently working with a Google Glass-style device to log you in. And eventually, the required tech could be incorporated into smartphones. So holding a smartphone onto your head to take a call would be enough to identify you. Wouldn't that be weird? Put the phone to your head before you are identified. The name for the new system is called Skull Conduct. Joining various other weird and wonderful biometric security solutions in development, including ones using vein patterns uh, on your skin, brain waves. The idea, these biological markers are much harder to fake, whereas if someone steals your password, you're pretty much out of luck. So some interesting study there. Now, of course, there's still some issues with it. It's being developed at the University of Stuttgart in Germany, um, and they're going to be presenting more of that at a conference in California in May. But it actually made me think, you know, how do our phones work now, the ones that have fingerprint scanners or maybe on your laptop, that sort of thing? What is going on? And that, in fact... There's two types of ways that our fingerprint scanners work. There's uh, optical and capacitance. Um, And the optical method, or electro-optical method, uh, works kind of like a traditional scanner. And I reckon I had one of these at my old workplace, where instead of the punch cards, we had a fingerprint scanner. And what that does is it uses bright lights to illuminate the peaks and valleys of your fingerprint and this thing captures a black and white image. The white areas are the peaks, the ridges that pop out, the dark areas, the valleys, the bits that go in, in your fingerprint. And a computer algorithm then compares that pattern of uh, your light-dark intersections uh, to images on file for the individual. And then, if it gets enough matches, then it considers the identity verified uh, and it, the level of match required can vary for different uh, security settings, uh, but yeah, it's it's finding these special unique points known as minutiae, uh, which are generally where two ridges meet or where a ridge splits. Uh, they've got special names for them, all those bifurcations and all that sort of thing. There are different patterns in there being identified. But there's also a different way we can do it too, which is the way that most of our smartphones and laptops do it, which is the electrocapacitance method. So here, instead of bouncing light off the print to generate the picture, this method relies on an array of really tiny uh, capacitive cells, cells that can hold charge, each less than a finger ridge wide. And these cells consist of two conductor plates separated by an insulating layer. So I bet you didn't realise how. How many little capacitance cells there are in that button on your phone that reads your fingerprint. When you put your finger on the scanner, the ridges cause some plates to come into contact which closes a circuit, generates a current while the cells under the ridges on your fingers remain separate, you know, because the valleys, there's nothing touching there, not connected up. So the system then interprets all these voltages generated by each cell to determine which one is under a ridge, which one's under a valley. Combining this data, the scanner generates an overall image of the print, much as uh, the uh, optical scanner would, but with a much higher degree of fidelity. It can see it to a much higher resolution. The other advantage of this is that capacitance scanners require an actual fingerprint shape to work, not just a light, dark pattern, which makes it harder to fool. You can't just hold a picture of a fingerprint up to the screen. So that's awesome. And uh, it also means stops people getting in without trying to guess your password. The other important thing is that these fingerprint uh, readers also don't store the data uh, anywhere except securely on your phone, uh, so you know you don't have to worry about your fingerprints going off to the cloud or anything like that and being used by the FBI or the NSA. So yeah, so look at the moment, fingerprint scanners all well and good. Potentially, it could be our heads opening our phones soon but for the moment use your fingerprints just FYI folks uh, you can also use your toe prints on the phone I tried this out myself and I can now unlock my phone with my big toe because my big toe is unique like my fingers and has its own print and so it can uh, it can be done just in case you're wondering well That just about wraps it up for today here on Fuzzy Logic. We're approaching 12 o'clock, which is time for the news. So it probably means I need to wrap things up myself. Thank you very much for tuning in this weekend, folks. It's always a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, And we like to hear from you. So if you do have any comments about the show, feel free to jump on our Facebook page. Uh, Just head to Facebook, type in Fuzzy Logic and look for The Autumn Leaf. That is us. And you can leave your comments there, or feel free to suggest topics you'd like us to cover, or anything, really. We'd love to hear from you. We also have our Ask Fuzzy, which is published in the Canberra Times every Sunday. Uh, check it out there. This week's question is, why do grunters grunt? What sort of, ad- are they talking about? Are they Are talking about people? Why do people grunt? No, they're talking about fish, a grunter fish. So you have to read a little bit further. Check out the Canberra Times for that one. If you have your own Ask Fuzzy question, send us an email, askfuzzy at zoho.com. And uh, if you enjoyed today's show, don't forget you can download the podcast. Just head to fuzzy Logic on 2xx.podbean.com or download from iTunes. My name's Broderick Matthews. That's all for me this Sunday.